we are here in our evening of satsang, where I will continue for the time being. It's a very long subject, that's why I say for the time being. And uh, there are people who already asked for some particular subjects to be discussed in the satsang, for some special subjects. So um, I don't know if I'm going to interrupt from time to time for one week and take another subject for the lightness of it. But right now we are in the flow and we restarted with uh, satsangs for this season and I'm doing satsangs based on the words, actions of Jesus. In 2007 or 8, in those years, I was making some satsangs based on the first two Gospels from the Bible and explaining some things from a yogic standpoint. It gave enormous aspiration to people. This one is not pointing at me, so you could do that. It would help. I'm just pointing right at me. So, and I was doing, uh, as I said, some more on the words of Jesus, and um, one of the conclusions of that in the history of Agama was that it generates a lot of clarity and a lot of aspiration and a lot of determination in the souls, in the hearts of people. And I was asked last year, I was asked before last year already, to resume to finish the four Gospels. So this is how last year I restarted with the Gospel of Luke, the third in the order of the Gospels of the Bible, um, and I am again commenting on the sayings of Jesus and actions of Jesus. The point of it is to give you clarity and aspiration, to show you the unity between the different spiritual traditions, and to try to understand in a yoga way, to try to understand through the prism of the chakras, of the mind, of resonance, of all these things, to try to understand what did Jesus say, why is it true, what kind of cosmic laws does he reveal. The spirituality and the spiritual revelation in general is based exactly on this, that humans are given spiritual revelations. Few people are being taught laws of the universe and the law of gravity it took many centuries until uh, it is or the urban legend goes that Newton saw an apple falling from a tree and then he figured out the laws of gravitation or the law of gravitation so people are understanding some laws by scientific research and some laws are more difficult to see for example, the Tibetan yogis, in their advice to the disciples of yoga, there's a book with the, the beginning advice for the disciples in yoga, a sort of a booklet for life, to keep you for life. In that booklet, one of the advice which they have says, the first meditation, the most simple meditation for a beginner to do the most recommended meditation for a beginner to do is to meditate on the law 
of cause and effect, which is called in slang, it's called the law of karma. So the Tibetans say, first of all, you should meditate on the law of karma. And, uh, you know, see what comes out of that. Because a lot of wisdom, a lot of humbleness, a lot of clarity, a lot of decision and determination is coming if you meditate on karma. Because everything, 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 everything creates karma one way or another. And dealing with it is very important. It's fundamental. Well, I have met people in the East and in the West in the last 20 years who are telling me that they don't believe in the law of karma. That they think that the Buddhist priests invented the concept of karma to just make peasants, people, simple people, behave. The karma is like a boogeyman. If you do something bad, karma will come and bite you in the ass. And therefore people will not kill and will not do this and that because they are afraid of the karma. And that's not true. It's just invented by Buddhist priests to manipulate people and keep... This is the mind of an idiot who produces an argument like this, you know. Tibetan yogis say the first meditation, the beginning, the kindergarten of spirituality is sit down and meditate, think deeply about the law of cause and effect. That will teach you a lot, that will clarify a lot of things, you know. And then some people say, no, we don't believe, they just invented it, they made it up. So, this is a cosmic law. The law of gravitation, everybody intuitively knew that there was a gravitation. But the fact that there is a karma, many people cannot see it, and many people even when you tell it to them, they cannot accept it. And therefore, uh, exactly as the law of karma was revealed by Krishna, by Buddha, and others in various spiritual environments, because not just one person talked about karma. A lot of spiritual masters and traditions spoke about karma. Then we are looking, when we talk about Jesus, at two things. Did Jesus also mention karma? Like, is it important enough that Jesus somewhere somehow, in his three years and a half of teaching, he actually mentions it. Because if the Tibetan yogis say karma is so super important, you know, you have to meditate on karma, it will educate you a lot. And then Jesus, who is supposed to be God and all-knowing and everything, and Jesus speaks for three years and he doesn't even mention about the fact that there is a law of action and reaction, that there is a law of cause and effect, then maybe the Tibetans got it wrong. Or maybe Jesus was an incomplete teacher. So then by simple common sense, if the Tibetans give it so much importance, then we should find a reflection of it in the teachings of Jesus. Of course Jesus will not call it the law of karma, because karma is a Sanskrit word. And you wouldn't expect Jesus in Israel to use a Sanskrit word. So either he had been in India or he had not been in India. You know, uh, he would not use the Sanskrit, a totally alien word. 
in those days. So you would expect that if there is a law of cause and effect, and if it is that important, then Jesus would mention it, even if under a modified form. Like the modified form would be a cultural, ethnic thing. How would you speak to the Jewish, Israeli uh, Jewish people 2,000 years ago about this topic? How would you describe that? So, please understand that that's one of the essences of spirituality. That's why we do it across traditions. I am not a Christian teacher in the meaning. I'm not a preacher of Christianity or anything. My purpose is to show you how it looks from the standpoint of yoga, because it is there. And the essence of spirituality, as I just said a couple of minutes ago, is exactly the fact that the great teachers, they teach us universal laws. Like Arjuna is asked to fight a sort of a holy war. And he says, how am I going to stand up and kill my cousins? Are you nuts? If I lose, we are screwed. And if I win, I am also screwed. So this is a devil. I cannot do this thing. And then Krishna sits and gives him the Bhagavad Gita on the battlefield. Just before the battle, says, please everybody wait, this disciple of mine has an unclarity. First I need, and for one hour, he gives him the Bhagavad Gita. And he explains to him how it is with karma, what is karma yoga, how to act with detachment, how to act with consecration, what is the real good way of acting for a spiritual human being, and all that. So, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, they reveal cosmic laws, which people don't see so easily. No? So, Buddha is telling us, how, which, which are cosmic laws revealed by Buddha? Well, he starts with the four noble truths. The first noble truth is that there is pain. Stop lying to yourself and soothe, saying, like, oh, my life is cool. It's not. You are going to get sick. You are going to get old and ugly. You are going to die. If you die, you might go to hell and you don't know what hit you. And so on, because your karma is not good when the moment when you die. And therefore, it's like stop pampering yourself and telling yourself, oh, everything is going to be all right. You know, like in, uh, there was a famous television series where the guy was always politically correct, American, and he said, everything is going to be all right, and people kept dying, 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 you know. It was not at all all right. It was, everything was terrible, but he kept on assuring everybody, don't worry, everything is going to be all right, you know. So Buddha says, stop saying this nonsense, that everything is all right, because it isn't. Life is not as pleasant as you are claiming it to be, and there are lots of problems. So you better realize and then stand up and find a solution. This is a cosmic law. These are cosmic truths that there is a yin and a yang, that there is an action and a reaction. Some of these laws are very technical and some of them are very subtle. Like Jesus, not just to come to the first which comes in mind with Jesus. Jesus says, with the same measure with whom you measure onto others, with the same measure God is going to measure onto you when your judgment day is coming. 
Like if you are impatient with other people, like come on man, faster, do it. Then God will also say, come on, faster, you know. Then you will not like it. Then you will not like it. So the way you treat others, the same way God treats you. Why? Because it's your mind. It's your resonance. It's your own resonance in the mind which does that. And therefore, Jesus is right. And Jesus says, if you want to obtain mercy, and believe me, you all should obtain mercy. And if you want to obtain mercy, from God, I mean, then you should be merciful. Because if you don't give mercy, you shall not obtain mercy. And therefore, these are cosmic laws which are more difficult to see by an ignorant person. And the spiritual masters, they tell us what's happening after death, what is, how is evolution going on, which are the laws of the universe which govern the evolution of the soul. This is what spirituality is. And Jesus, being a very radical master, being a very powerful present, not only as a master, but he claiming no less that he is God visiting the earth, then automatically he is describing in three years and a half, he is describing a lot of very condensed things to people. And these are the things which, they are not valid only for Christians. They are valid for the yogis as well. They are valid for the Sufis. They are valid for the Buddhists. They are valid for the fundamentalistic Jews. Everybody who has ears to hear should listen and hear. Because this, this is wisdom coming from beyond. If you are a Christian and you hear something which Buddha has to say, it's enriching your Christian life, no? Because it's like, maybe it was not said clearly enough by Jesus or by some Christian saying, but with Buddha, Buddha has hit the nail on its head, has said it really in a sharp way. Because different teachers have different talent in how articulate they can be, in how clear they can be about some subject. Jesus, for example, when he speaks about the human soul, what do you feel? Your emotions, your aspirations, your hopes for immortality, your being tested by the demonic forces. Jesus is very talented when speaking about that. Buddha is, however, talented at other things because he comes from another chakra in another way. He has a different background. He has had different teachers. He has had different... His environment is different. And therefore, Jesus and Buddha, they complete each other. And Krishna also puts a piece of the puzzle and Milarepa <coughs> or Rumi or somebody, some other great spiritual presence also shows another facet of the diamond, which is existence, which is reality. And thus, I feel that we are always enriched. So even when we have yoga, which is so precious, and yoga contains all this technology, which is... It took thousands of years to create this technology, which is so important for the human being. 
and tested and verified for hundreds and thousands of years for you, yoga may sometimes maybe be dry. And then Jesus comes and he makes you shed tears. You know, Jesus touches your heart and he tells you something about your heart, about your soul. Hey, you are a human being and you have expectations of this and that. And if you don't forgive, you shall not be forgiven. And you are going to fight with your karma like a rat in a labyrinth. You know, you're never going to find a way out simply because you forgot to be loving and forgiving and merciful and this and that. So Jesus brings an extra detail which is very important even for a yogi. Rumi, in one of his poems, Rumi copies Jesus a lot. He loves Jesus and he is a bhakti type of Sufi. Rumi, for example, he says, uh, thousands, have, he speaks to God and he calls the universe the garden. And he says, thousands have died with searching without finding you in this garden. Like you think about how many people have gone in monasteries. Men, women, searching for the absolute. Millions and millions, maybe a billion in the whole history. Do you think all of them got enlightened? Obviously not. And therefore, what it is like, like 99% of the people who lived in monasteries did not reach enlightenment. The percentage is quite abysmal. The percentage is quite scary. No? And then you are thinking and saying, what is happening if you go in a monastery and you give all your life to Jesus or to Buddha or to <coughs> someone like that? And then, in the end of the life, you didn't make it. Sure, you can, uh, you can, you can kind of atone yourself, you can kind of uh, calm yourself down by saying, okay, I have done some steps now, I'm not finished in the next life, hopefully I will again get into a spiritual environment and resume my spiritual practice, and then I will do the second half of my trip in the next life. Now I managed to do half. That's true. That's what Krishna says. But in the end, can you be sure? Do you know? So we have this issue which is scary. Any one of you who did consider or does consider that you want to give your life to God probably are saying in your mind this, out of a hundred people who try, one succeeds. Will I manage to be that one? Or will I be, like, it's pretty scary if I'm not, you know, maybe I should go on Wall Street and trade stocks and make a million dollars per day and then be financially, you know, secure for the rest of my life, you know, independent and so on. Like, uh, if I don't do that, and I'm sitting there doing I don't know what mantra. And if in the end it was not worth it, like I, I'm not saying it was not worth it, but that's how you would consider, then it's like a bummer. It's like I invested in a project and in the end I didn't finish that project. So, Rumi says, thousands have searched for you in this garden without finding you. Scary. Scary, you know, like Rumi says, God is so difficult to find because he's a crafty bastard. He's hiding behind the scenes and there is a lot of Maya 
And if you don't go 110% like Ramakrishna, you will not make it to the ultimate reality. And it's like, whoa. And then Rumi gives the solution. But he says, but you are easy to find when you come as a lover. Like Rumi says, if you put your heart chakra into it, if you do a bit of bhakti, if you have Vishvana Pranidana from your heart, you will not be those 99. You will be that one in a hundred who does fine. So, hey, this is a great teaching. It says spirituality with, should be accompanied by some Anahata Chakra. You should put aspiration from the heart exactly the kind with Jesus creating people. And then the chances of you fulfilling your goal are much, much bigger. That's why it's like, is Rumi useless? See, Rumi, a Buddhist person, could do some vipassana. And you look at their pictures all over in Thailand, because everybody has a picture of some or another Buddhist monk. All of them look so dry, so tough, and many of them so unhappy. It's like, but you are easy to find here when you come as lover. Then the garden gives its mystery away immediately because you have put love. Kashmiri Shaivistic masters say the same. You can do asceticism like Buddha the ascetic, like I'm sorry, like Shiva the ascetic, until you turn blue. If you don't have love, you are going to be cheated, you are going to be deluded because you are just trying to do a show of how strong your willpower is, you know? And in the end you are actually not obtaining the real thing. So, that's the reason for which uh, listening things as a yogi from the mouth of Jesus, it's the same reality, the same spiritual laws, said in another way, with another angle, and sometimes they reveal things which we don't see. I was telling in one lecture long, long time ago, many years ago, that when I lived in India, I was shocked how few Indian yogis understood the importance of humbleness, of being humble in your heart. And how many Indian practitioners of yoga I met in all these ashram environments of India who were terribly arrogant and terribly unpleasant. And just like did nobody tell them that without humbleness you are not going to make it. Know that you consecrate your life to yoga and if you lack this one ingredient it's not going to work. You are just going to fail and be a fiasco. Mahatma Gandhi had discovered it, you know, he said, humility is the solid foundation of all the other virtues. If you are non-violent, but proud that you are non-violent, you will not make it to God. You have to be non-violent and humble that you are non-violent. So, in this way, uh, I consider again and again, I'm opening always by saying, Listen to Jesus because he knows what he's talking about and it's a fresh angle. Of course, you come from Christian countries, most of you. It's not a fresh angle for you culturally.
But then when you come to yoga and you listen to Patanjali and you listen to Krishna and Bhagavad Gita and so on, and then you return back to Jesus, then Jesus is suddenly fresh again because it presents and things, the pieces of the puzzle are falling together. And it is my experience from years ago that people following these teachings, understanding Jesus in this way, they got very motivated and very uh, turned on spiritually by seeing how things fit. So I came somewhere, for those of you who would follow on a text uh, in, at home or something, um, I was coming, I'm somewhere in the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, where Jesus suddenly, after a series of events which were very meaningful and related to this, I spoke about that in the previous satsang, uh, suddenly Jesus is coming and gives a special sermon which became so famous that it is quoted in two or three Gospels, like two or three out of four Gospels, two or three authors, they quote him as he says that it was one of the most important sermons or discourses which he gave. And in this discourse, he talks about up till, depending on which Gospel you look in, because the Gospel authors didn't have the memory of an elephant, and some of them wrote from hearsay, like Luke has never met Jesus, and Luke therefore heard the story from Paul, and Paul had never seen Jesus, so he heard it from Peter and the other apostles. So therefore the Gospel of Luke is already third-hand, it's not even second-hand rendering of the event, it's third-hand rendering of event heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who was there when it happened. And thus, of course, it's not always mathematically accurate, but it, that's even beautiful because it gives another angle, it gives a few other details, and in this way things are completing each other. And this is the famous speech of Jesus about the blessings. And as I said last time, I'm not going to repeat all that thing, listen there. Uh, Jesus is upside down. The world of spirituality is a different thing. Like Ramakrishna said, all the people in my village are interested to have children and houses and money. And I'm not interested in any of those. If I would be asked to live my life without having children, without having money, and without having houses and land and property, I would. I would. I'm not crazy about that. No? So he said, I'm interested in God and I want to sing to God every day. And when people see me going for 10 hours and singing to God, they think this young boy is Gaga. You know? He's like, why is he? So he's like a raven. You know? Maybe a dog bit him. And he has rabies or something. You know? It's like, what the heck is happening to this young man? So spirituality is like this. Sometimes spiritual people are exactly topsy-turvy, they are upside down. What other people want, they don't. And what other people are not interested, they do want. Sometimes spirituality, the spiritual quest, is almost like a mental disease, you know. It's like you are completely the other way around. And last time I remember that I told you, and I feel inspired to repeat it again, you know, because in the very often in the present circumstances, the pressures become big, you know, it's exactly the attitude that we have to the world, 
somebody was telling to Athanasius, a great Christian mystic, you know, he was telling to him, because he was putting them to shame. He was the one who was there. Also, John the Baptist, he was living in the desert, and the Bible says he was eating grasshoppers, and he was eating honey. Anyway, people were like, what the fuck is this crazy guy doing out in the desert, you know? And they asked him, what do you want? And he said, I'm the voice crying in the desert. Make your way straight. And uh, with Athanasius, the same. No, people were shocked. Like, is this is what it truly means to be Christian? To go in the desert and live in a grave like Athanasius? And somebody told him, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And then he said, yes, please go back to them and tell them that I am also against them. Like, I think that their world is a world of deceit, Maya, egoism, blindness, evil, darkness. And that's why I live here in the desert, because I want to be alone with God and I'm not interested in the Facebook of those people. The Facebook of those people is just full of shit and they are going to die with it and go to hell together with it. You know, it's like, what's the big deal? Now, I want to do something else. So the spiritual people, uh, I said, Jesus, you see, it starts from Jesus. Jesus is exactly like this. He talks about blessing, and he says, blessed are you when this and this, and he chooses only terrible things. The first one was, blessed are you when you are poor. Nobody really wants to be poor. Only a hundred thousand idiots want to be poor in this world, because they think it's going to be useful to go to God. Everybody else wants to be wealthy. And so on. So, blessed are you when you are poor. And the alternative of it, as I commented last time, is that you can be can be interpreted as being poor in spirit. Like, hey, I don't want to be a bit slow and dumb. I want to be really smart. But the smart people, I can tell you the conclusion of a lifetime. Smart is not really smart. That's why Plotinus, a Greek philosopher, he wrote a big thing which is somewhere in your first level yoga course is one of those bright thoughts. The real intelligence, the real intelligence is the one which separates the real from the unreal and shows you what is eternal. No? Because there are many people who are intelligent and they are sarcastic, atheistic, cynical. They don't believe in God. Generally, the more smart people they are the most demonic people in the world. The people who are very smart, they are very egocentric because they are smart. And then Jesus says, then better you be poor in spirit and humble and be with God. It's a more safe path. Intelligence is very slippery. It's true that there exists a clean intelligence. There is a sort of a perfect Ajna Chakra, a harmonious one. There is an Ajna Chakra which is discriminating between the real and the unreal, between light and darkness, separates them, and that is the intelligence which shows to you, like Buddha. Buddha didn't do it so much from the heart as much from the intelligence. As soon as he saw a sick man, an old man, and a dead man, he immediately was smart and he said, hey, I'm going to be ill, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to die, I'm going to get old. You know, it's like, then what the fuck am I so happy about? I'm sitting here carefree in the palace of my parents and the clock is ticking. 
the clock is ticking, it's just a matter of time before I will be sick or dead. So why am I just waiting to die? I'm sitting in the palace of my parents and I just hope that I will get one extra day, one extra day, one extra day. No. It is a psychological, now they have thanatology from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and others, the study of dying people, the psychology of dying people. The most often, the most often request from people which are dying is if I could live one more day. Everybody is asking for one more day. And there is a great Christian mystic who said, if you would love God, you would reach God in one day. That one day would be enough. But when you ask to live for one, when you are coming down with Ethiopian airlines, everybody is praying to have one more day to find God in the last minute because they dilly-dallied and they just postponed it like Buddha in his palace. And then the bloody bastard doesn't give you that one day. It's too late to ask for it and you don't get it. So that's why uh, the understanding, when you understand things with the mind, there is a clean intelligence which shows you. Look around. How many people died asking for one more day? How many mothers die asking for one more day to arrange somebody to take care of their children? And they died anyway. Seldom, seldom, once in a million, there is some case where for a mysterious reason which we human beings don't understand, some angel or something interferes and then there is a little bit of a miracle. And that miracle is quoted, but nobody quotes the other 999,000. 999 who were praying, were asking, and the miracle did not happen for them. So Buddha, when he looks at it with intelligence, he says, you don't have to be too smart to see that life is fucked up in a, in a very funny way, you know, and therefore that you should prepare, you should do something, you should, you know. So there is a clean intelligence, but Jesus is skipping it and says most people, when they are smart, they use it for negative purposes. They think too much, they build up a big ego, and in the end, when they die, the fact that they were smart in their lives was not of great use. So, I explained in the last one about this. And then he starts with another blessing, which are... Which is, uh, again, telling us another paradoxical thing, another twisted way of thinking. And I see that in the different literature, uh, the order of the blessings is sometimes changed because they are quoted from different Gospels. And uh, so I'm just called, going to continue with the Gospel of Luke itself, where the second where he goes, he says, Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. This again is multiple understandings because you are hungering for what? In the old days, 
when there were no Tesco's and uh, big cities and stuff like this, people were not exporting and importing food from the most different countries of the world, and some countries were not self-sufficient in terms of food, and they depended entirely of the geographical and climatic condition. And if you got one, two, three fucked up years agriculturally, everybody was going in trouble. In this humanity, there is not one, two, there are thousands of cases in the history of each country where in one year, people died of starvation. Starvation doesn't exist today too much in Europe, in North America, in Japan, and places like this. But it did exist in the old days, and even in Palestine, being a pretty desert, dry country, agriculture was not very brilliant. So the land was hardly, hardly producing the food for people to sustain themselves. And if the climate was not good, then those people, people in the time of Jesus, sometimes went through hunger. And sometimes that hunger was so bad that some people would die. Children would die. Now, even today, it happens in Africa, where civilization has not penetrated completely. And there are places in Africa where today, today, a lot of children have died. Today, this very day. So, um, hunger is, first of all, to be taken literally. Like Jesus is saying, you know, there are, I know, I'm aware of the fact that there are people who suffer from hunger. And he said, not everybody gets to eat every day. Not everybody gets to eat enough. There will be a few rich people like the king or other people who are getting fat and obese because they have as much food as they want whenever they want. But it's not valid for the rest of the people. So hunger is like, you know, when animals are hungry, they are becoming like beasts. So the same is with human beings. You know, you keep human beings hungry, they become, as the American expression goes, they become lean and mean. You know, they, they become like, when, when you are not eating, life is not good. Your brain doesn't produce the oxytocin or the uh, serotonin or the other hormones which make you happy and settle. And thus, hunger had always been a problem. And people were complaining about it. It's the most basic thing. Because if you don't have food and water, you die. You simply cannot continue your life. And Jesus is addressing it. And he says, in other times of his life, in other words, he mentions this issue. He says, sometimes you might want to do something for God, and then you will have no time to eat. But he says, people are not feeding themselves only with bread, but also with the word of God. He says, what if one day you skip dinner, but you have got filled up with wisdom by listening to a discourse, by reading a book, by watching a very spiritually inspiring movie, or something like that. Was it worth it to give up your dinner? Skip a meal now and then, so that you can put that time and energy into growing up spiritually. Of course it's worth it, because this body that we feed 
will push the daisies one day. It's a very poor investment to just keep feeding this body. Because you feed it and feed it and one day it will rot and die. And so it's like Jesus says, don't pay more attention than it deserves. Do whatever you need to do for the body and invest in your soul. So here he says, blessed you who hunger now because you will be satisfied. But the question is, how many have been hungry in the history of the world? As I told you, maybe today it doesn't happen so much in the Western culture, but in the history of the world it has happened a lot. And did they all become enlightened? Did they all, is hunger a way to, is Jesus talking about the technology of fasting? Like, okay, you are hungry and you will be satisfied. Maybe, maybe there is the third or fourth parallel understanding of this parable. Maybe Jesus is symbolically talking to people because he knew that in front of him there were people who were fasting. It was Friday and they were fasting, you know, and he says, blessed are you who are hungry because you will be satisfied. You are fasting and fasting is a form of tapasya and you are going to get some rewards because you are fasting. You are purifying your nadis, you are detoxing your body, you are improving your health, you are getting some spiritual astralization, you feel your astral body more because you are hungry for 24 hours or 30 hours or something. No, like you can think in this way that Jesus is literally talking about hunger on purpose, hunger by design, like you are fasting. That's also possible. And he says those who do the tapas of fasting, they shall be satisfied. You are getting something in exchange. In the beautiful book Siddhartha, written by Hermann Hesse, Hermann Hesse puts in the mouth of his character Siddhartha that he's trying to become a man of the society. And they say, you've been living in a monastery, you don't know anything. He says, yes, but I can think, I can wait, and I can fast. This is my power. I can think like I can visualize my goal. I can wait, like if it doesn't happen tomorrow, it will happen the day after tomorrow, it's okay, I'm patient. And I can fast. Like if in this process I have no food for two days, it's not the end of the world. So I can wait for two days and fast and maybe bake some food and have something and eat little and still I will win. He says, I am a winner because I can think, I can wait, and I can fast. While other people will say, oh my God, what a tragedy. Today I didn't even have money to eat something. Stop complaining and fast. Do it, simply say, even if somebody does come and give me food, I shall not take it anymore. Because I just decided that now for 24 hours I fast. That's exactly like when people decide to fast and people come and offer them food exactly in that day. It's exactly like when people decide to quit tobacco and people offer them cigarettes for free exactly when they try to quit tobacco. No? It's a tapas. It becomes a tapas. People say, yeah, but you didn't have food anyway. Yeah, but I could have tried to go steal some food. I could have tried to go to beg some food. But you know what? I did not steal. I did not beg. I did not try to get a coconut from a coconut tree or something. I just decided, you know what? 
instead of being tormented by all these things. Today I will fast. I will fast and that's it. And even if I get food, I'm not going to touch it. It becomes from a victim mentality. It becomes a manipulistic mentality of somebody who does tapasya. It says, okay, you know, if you want to eat, I didn't have food today. You know what, I'm going to fast for three days. Just for the heck of it, you know, just to go through the roof with it. No, then you are not a victim. Then you are taking charge psychologically. So it's a very important thing. So Jesus may mean fasting, but Jesus also may mean hunger on a social level. Like some people are hungering because they are poor, they don't have enough resources, and Jesus is telling them, you think that your life is miserable. Imagine somebody, maybe today again in Europe, in America it's less, but imagine that you are talking to a person who has been poor and hungry for all their life. That person is 40 years old, and for 40 years he goes around and he says, I am rock bottom, you know, I am low life, I am at the lower end of the society, and I'm hungry, and you know, I'm miserable, and this uh, makes him make all sorts of compromises, and so on, and he's sad. And Jesus says, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. You are hungry, but because of this, by the law of cause and effect, by the law of action and reaction, you're just going to get something much better. It's exactly like you've got a hundred units to be given to you, and only five have been given to you. There are still 95 waiting for you, potentially, somewhere. And if you don't eat now, you shall eat in the world of spirit later. So Jesus, this is one of the things which materialistic people absolutely hated. The fact that Jesus, and they don't give it to Jesus. They, are, they, not, they feel that they cannot attack Jesus. Some do, but those are more rare. They are mad at religion. They say, oh, we don't know if Jesus said that. They probably falsified it, probably he never said it, probably he never even existed, this Jesus guy. And then these religious people, they said to all the hungry people who were under their rulership now, they said, blessed you when you are hungry, for you'll be satisfied. Which means if you don't eat now, you will be compensated in the afterlife. There will be a spiritual reward for that. And in this way, you keep the hungry people under control. You manipulate them. You keep the hungry people happy with the promise of some bullshit in the future. Because it's bullshit. These people, the people who hear this and they cannot take it, are exactly the people who cannot have the faith. Like, your mind, the monkey mind, would do anything to say, Jesus said, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Defense. Uh, Jesus never said that. They modified it. Defense. Jesus even didn't exist. Jesus is a figment of imagination. Some religious assholes wrote this three, four, five hundred years later to just manipulate the masses and make them accept hunger, make them accept their poor status. Like, what is this? This is lack of 
faith. Like some people say, Jesus said, if you close your eyes and focus in the third eye, like Krishna said, you are going to get out of this samsara. And some people say, I believe it. That's what Krishna said. That's Kriya Yoga. That's Raja Yoga. Go in the third eye. Some people, when they hear some spiritual advice, they click. They believe. These are the people who mysteriously have the power to believe. And so many Hollywood movies you might have seen, and so much literature is, because one of the tragedies of the modern society, especially in the 19th century and 20th century, and the 21st century is even worse, is that people have lost their faith. People cannot believe. And the people who are incapable to believe, they hate the people that believe. They go mad, they go crazy. they say, I don't know how you can still believe in that shit, I feel like I want to tear your head off. This is not because the belief is wrong, it's because they are handicapped, they are invalid. It's exactly like a man without legs, who hates the men who have legs and who are running and enjoying the use of their legs. And he says, how can you walk? Uh, no, because look at me. No, the people who have no faith, they are in a deadlock. It's a, the lack of faith is ultimately a very bad spiritual karma. You know, karma can be physical, social, sexual, financial, and of many other types, and there is a spiritual karma. This is the bad spiritual karma. No? Like, in Tibet, they mention the ten crimes which are the worst spiritual crimes which a person can imagine. No. One of them is to make two spiritual schools, like branches of Tibetan Buddhists, for example, to fight with each other. To start a religious war between two sects is a crime which makes that in, after you die, you are going to have a ton of bad spiritual karma. How will that manifest? In the next life, you are going to be born as a person without faith. And as much as your mother, father, friend try to put something into you, you are going to say, I'm incapable to believe in this shit, it's all bullshit, don't give me, no, no, you are all stupid and so on. I don't know how you can believe in Jesus. The unfortunate truth is that the people who say this and feel this, they live, they don't, they don't go to hell. They already are in hell. Their life is hell psychologically because there is no light in the end of the tunnel. There is no hope. There is no nothing and they live in a world which is miserable and very, very frightening. This is the spiritual karma. The spiritual karma simply makes you blind to something. You simply cannot see or understand something. In the recent events with Agama, you've seen how many people have been afflicted by negative spiritual karma. Suddenly their mind just shut. From one day to the next. One day they went one way, the next day they were 180 degrees on that. So, that's why 
Some people will refuse. Did Jesus really say, blessed you who are hungry? If you believe it, then you start exploring the meanings of it. What did Jesus want to say? But the first reaction is that no, Jesus couldn't have said that. My faith, my own, tells me that he did. But there is no scientific way in which I can demonstrate to you that he did. But I just see that it fits with the cosmic laws as they have been announced by Krishna, Buddha, and other great spirits of this planet. And that's why it's even possible to see metaphysically that Jesus... And then people say, yeah, but uh, it was not Jesus because Jesus didn't even exist. Uh, the people who wrote these things, they picked it up from Hindu metaphysics, from Buddhist metaphysics, and they created a concoction called the Gospel of Luke, and it's bullshit from one end to the other. They still cannot believe. They will say, yeah, maybe there was a principle from India, and then of course the principle from India was concocted by other bastards from India, from something even older, so that one is also not true. That's the implication. If I deny one, then it's like a domino effect. Everything falls. You know, like people say, God did not create the life on earth. It was some alien civilization which inseminated the earth. But who inseminated the alien civilization? Another alien civilization, even older than them. Who inseminated that one? There must have been one which was the first one. How did that one appear? The fact that you say that aliens have brought life on Earth doesn't solve the question of how did life appear. Okay, life did not first appear on Earth. It appeared in the Pleiades. But how did it appear in the Pleiades? No, that the question remains. This doesn't solve at all the question. So, you are being told here that Jesus said, Blessed are you who hunger, and so on. The first thing is, if you stick to it, or not. Some people, not because it's Jesus, they say it's not Jesus, Jesus didn't exist, it comes from India, it comes from, you know, whatever domino principle you are practicing there, you are rejecting it, rejecting it, rejecting it, because your soul is simply incapable to swallow it. This is the mysterious thing about faith, and this faith manifests in everything. I remember when I was young and I first discovered literature about radionics, radionics and radiesthesia. I being a physicist and an engineer, to be a student in engineering, when I saw, when I read a bit of radionics, and I went through the roof, you know, like this was especially for people that have a technical inclination, radionics and radiesthesia are like... Amazing is a very small word to use for it. They are the science of the future. I read first of all about it in a book which was called actually Future Science, written by some famous parapsychologist. And uh, then... I didn't have time, but there was a story where I took a chapter from that book and I was supposed to translate it from English to my native language and uh, I didn't have time and I gave it to a friend who was interested in yoga as well. And somebody said, this guy 
is going to misuse this knowledge. You know, it's like, why did you give it to him? It's not a clean person. Like, we knew, we knew him. A couple of us knew him and we knew he was a man with a, let's put it in a yogic way, with a dirty Manipura chakra. He was a person with some not very clean intention. Declared, you know, he was, that was how he was, you know. And then I said, okay, but maybe then he will not be able to believe what is written in that book, because even parapsychology, people do not believe in it. We watched a movie, again, maybe it comes in the Agama movie club, uh, you know, about a parapsychological experiment in Los Angeles with a woman possessed by a spirit and so on. And the people from the parapsychology department of that university, they could see it crystal clear. And the person from the psychology department of the same university, even when they saw it, they could not believe in what they saw. And they said, no, no, there must be some other explanation. And so it's like some people simply cannot believe something. And that simply means that you are trying to put a, I don't know, a cylinder with a diameter of four centimeters into a hole which has a diameter of three centimeters, you know, and simply doesn't go through. It's too small. Some, for some people, the mind simply cannot lodge some ideas. That's a karma. But it's a very subtle type of karma which simply says for the next 45 years you are going to be blind to this. Really, in spirituality, we see it all the time. We see it, for example, I was just seeing a documentary, I didn't even finish it tonight, about a Chinese healer who discovered, who put together some methods from traditional Chinese medicine. He made a synthesis, and the child died during one of his retreats in Australia, apparently left in a room by his parents, and he choked with something, and the Australian government blamed this guy. And they arrested, they deported him from London, and at the time when this documentary was made well, a year ago, six months ago, this guy was in a prison in Australia. A great Chinese doctor and healer, and people could not accept, most people thought that he was a fraud, and they wanted to get rid of him. And the guy... Apparently, from what I have seen and experienced a little bit with his methods, the guy discovered an atomic bomb. The guy discovered some of the basic fundamental secrets at the foundation of Chinese traditional medicine. And he was six months ago, maybe he still is, he was in an Australian prison. And he was a man with multiple university licenses, very well-educated man, and who was doing healing and teaching, not for money. He was not making a business out of it. Exactly as this satsang is for free, and you can come if you want, and if you don't want, you don't come. This man was doing the, his methods, Paida Laijin and others. You know, he was doing them for free. And then he got himself into a prison. It's like some people, that's exactly what I say. You Sometimes you can see that some people are blocked, and we see it, that's why I said, we see it, you know. I have seen videos, books, and practical cases in my life, tens and tens of cases of people, men and women, young and old, healed 
of cancer. 100% healed of cancer without chemotherapy, without radiation, and without surgery. It's almost impossible for somebody to believe that. That cylinder is in my head. It has space in my head. I have a big hole here, and I can swallow that cylinder. For other people, the hole is too small, and it simply doesn't go in. They can't accept it, you know, they, they simply can't see it. So, we in spirituality, we see a lot of blockages, that some people, their mind is open, and they can immediately understand some things, and if Buddha said a wise thing, people say, hey, I'm going to live my life according to what Buddha said, because that man was really smart, really enlightened. It's worth it to listen to Buddha. Because he was not an idiot. It's also worth it to listen to Jesus. Because he also was not an idiot. But some people simply can't get it through their head. Because there is a karma. This karma which prevents you from seeing or understanding some things. This is one of the most radical forms of karma. Jesus himself knew it. And he said, I'm talking to you, but not all my words are staying in you. Like Jesus spoke to people, they heard it, it went out to the other ear, and they forgot it. And then when something happened in their life, they didn't remember five years ago, I heard this guy called Jesus, who recommended do like this. And they did something stupid, because they couldn't remember, it didn't stay with them, they didn't pay attention, they didn't have the faith like saying, okay, if I heard Buddha say that, or if I heard Krishna say that, for me, it becomes law in my life. Like somebody who says, I decided not to kill animals unless it's necessary, and therefore, I want to be vegetarian. And then 20 years later, he or she is no longer vegetarian. Like, what the fuck did happen with your understanding? Like 20 years ago, you were crystal clear about what vegetarianism means from a karmic standpoint, and this and that. And then suddenly, this, this blindness, it's like a blindness where you cannot see. And that's why when you read this, most people organically, they don't want to listen to it, because Jesus is preaching hunger, which is one of the most basically horrifying things, like it's one of the most ancestral fears in the collective subconscious mind that at some point we might get hungry and die. And Jesus is praising it. Either he speaks about fasting or he speaks about social hunger. Hey, some people are hungry because they have a very small plot of land. They don't produce enough food. They are poor. They are socially not powerful. Sometimes, you know, they are reduced to some very low nutrition. And Jesus says, consider yourself blessed, because you are going to be compensated. There is going to be a compensation. People cannot believe in this compensation. People say, sure, the church has been very smart. It kept people oppressed and hungry, promising them treasures after they die. Fuck! You know, it's like you can't believe in such a thing. What if it's true? What if it is true? That's why I say, 
think profoundly about these things and try to understand. And of course, the, there is the third meaning, which is the spiritual meaning, in which Jesus says, Blessed are you who hunger now. Hunger now for what? Like people are sitting in front of Jesus. More intensely than you are sitting in front of me, because Jesus is like shining and he simply says, I'm God. The door to the kingdom of heaven is right here in front of you. I am the gate through which you can, you know, like he is really wired up. I am a tame spiritual speaker compared to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is bringing it up to an acute level, to such an acute level that people tell him, I know that you could bring back Lazarus. And then he brings back Lazarus after four days, in the fourth day after his death, when he's rotten and stinking already. No? So it's like, Jesus is completely on, and the reaction of people, imagine how people were in front of such a man who was there, shining like that, and they knew this man can click fingers and a dead man can come up like this in a second. You know, like, whoa! You know, it's like, people must have been shuddering and shivering in front of Jesus, you know, like when they knew that this man could manufacture 5,000 pieces of bread and 5,000 pieces of fish like this, you know, and feed a whole crowd. You know, like, where is the limit then? You know? So Jesus was a presence which it's hard for you to imagine what kind of quiver this man was given. And this fanatic man, this absolute man, this divine man, sits in heaven and says, Blessed are you who hunger now. What are people hungering when they tremble? My friend Sahajananda, he calls it the tremor of the heart. That when you are awakened, your heart starts shivering and you are about to start crying because this is your Ishvara Pranidana. This is your spiritual aspiration exploding. It's like a tsunami that swells in your heart and you are like, whoa. The heavens are opening now. You know, this is it. And Jesus, therefore, he talks to them metaphorically. He doesn't also speak about physical hunger. Maybe there were some people who were hungry, and they said, we're following this hippie who gives preaches, and we forgot to eat today. We haven't been in a village to buy ourselves a piece of bread, and we are here, we have been 16 hours with this crazy guy, now he is preaching, you know, and you know, and then he's telling them, bless those who hunger, like you've hungered, waiting for me to come to the satsang and talk to you. Blessed are you, because you hunger, because later you are going to be fulfilled. If you hunger, waiting for a spiritual master, like you are waiting for the Dalai Lama, right? And he is much more difficult to wait, because it takes more, 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 more hours to meet with the Dalai Lama. You're waiting for the Dalai Lama and you're hungry. And he tells you, blessed are you who hunger for meeting me and may you be fulfilled. You know, like may this mean that you have earned some spiritual merit. May this sacrifice which you made, may it give you some spiritual merit. You know, like it's like a spiritual test. Would you wait for the Dalai Lama if you had to wait for six hours? If you would wait for six hours, then you have a bonus. You have a prize because it's like you pass a test. 
you want the presence of the Dalai Lama so much that you can even wait and be hungry for six hours and it doesn't matter. We are anytime do that sacrifice. So Jesus, on one hand, he can mention again physical hunger, but not on a social level. Like, blessed are you who are hungry because you are poor, and uh, but don't worry because you can be complete enlightened beings. Sometimes hungry people have become more enlightened. Definitely they are more healthy. You know, the, there's a famous experiment in nutrition which simply says that they took lab rats, guinea pigs, whatever, they took uh, lab laboratory animals, rats, and they fed them half of the daily necessary. They had two groups, rats fed normally and rats fed half. And of course the ones which were half, they were always hungry and always skinny. Guess what? The skinny ones lived two times more. Their lifespan was two times longer. So when you make yourself fat, you kill yourself at the same time. It's like, you no, know, if you keep yourself skinny, even the health is going two times better. So Jesus says, blessed you who are hunger because you don't know what virtues are hidden in this hunger. Maybe because you are hungry, you think more about God. Maybe because you are hungry, you are more humble in your daily life. Maybe because you are hungry, you are a bit more sensitive to energies and to the invisible planes of the universe. Maybe because you are hungry, there are other psychological compensations and then you start feeling bliss in prayer, when you do prayer. Then you feel bliss and other people feel bliss when they stop their faces. No? So maybe you replace it with something else. So Jesus is right, there is a psychological compensation and Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And he means about a lot of things. Fasting, social hunger, hunger because of the event which was just happening then and people had to make some sacrifices to attend that event. He was on the field somewhere between villages in a wild place, you know, and people were not comfortable and all that. And last but not least, people are listening to God and you know, if you'd speak to Jesus, who claims to be God, and he usually substantiates it by raising dead people from the graves, and you know, like this is not just a guy who... I've seen a workshop with a guy from Australia, an Australian guy, who claims that he's Jesus. I understand that there are one or two of those in Russia as well, so the world is full of Jesuses right now. There's one in Australia, and he's making satsangs, and on his satsangs, he goes to the board, he has a board, and he goes to the board where he says, and the first thing which he says, he writes it on the board with a marker. He says, I am Jesus. And then he writes, deal with it. You know, it's like if you don't like it, kiss my ass and get out of my conference room. You know, it's like, I am Jesus, deal with it. But that man never raised a dead person from the grave. Never kissed a leper and make him without leprosy. Never gave sight to a blind, and never walked on the water of a pond. So this is why I say it's easy to be a schizophrenic like this. To me, that such a person is just a schizophrenic. No, it's easy to be a schizophrenic like this, and to rave all sorts of lunatic things. We had them in Agama, periodically they showed. There was one guy who was 
standing in the lake here in our pond and preaching like Buddha. He was waiting for disciples to come and listen to his sermon. We had a Buddha giving a sermon in our pond here some 10 years ago. And we, others, we had one who claimed he was coming from Shambhala. And he wanted to teach me and the whole school a big lesson. And so, so like we've seen all sorts of maniacs and weirdos along the time. But Jesus apparently was walking the talk, you know, like he was the real deal. No? I'm not telling you I am God walking on the surface of the earth and I'm an avatar. Because then you guys would be legitimate to say we have somebody dead waiting in the other room. Can you bring them back to life? You know, just because you are God, you know, just as an incidental, a little sleight of hand of yours might could do that, you know. So, uh, one has to walk the talk. One has to be what they preach and what they do. And therefore, imagine if you'd be, and it's almost impossible to imagine, if you'd be in front of Jesus, that all your hopes, all like God, has materialized in a human body. And now you look in the eyes of a dude, you look in the eyes of a guy, and you also know that this guy is probably God. So you're talking like usually God doesn't answer to you. But now God sits in a body in front of you, and you can talk to God. God might even answer to you if you ask a question. Like, you know, it's like, why don't you just go then to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you promise? Well, look, I love you. I'll try to do whatever you tell me. Can you promise that you will take me with you to paradise in this life, in this body, as soon as possible? That's all I want from you. I, don't, I just want to be with you. Take me with you. This is a man who is raising dead bodies. So it's like, if he says yes, you know, that's what happened with the... Thief, you know, that Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and one of the thieves was mocking, was having a bad manipura, and was laughing of Jesus, and the other one was more humble, and the other one said, Jesus, if you really are Jesus, if you really are God, pray for me, you know, and so on. And then Jesus turns to him. It's history, you know, like how smart do you have to like smart? It was not smart, it was humbleness. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Truly, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Jackpot. Jackpot. You ask the right person for the right thing at the right moment, you know. It's like what a chance to be crucified on the side of Jesus. And to be humble enough to just say, you know, then all your samsara is over. Everything has finished. You gain what Buddha gained in years and years of meditation. Just because you asked Jesus, please, please. And Jesus took pity on you and he said, okay. You know, can you imagine that Jesus would not take pity on somebody who asks respectfully and politely and humbly and says, you know, I've been looking for this all my life. Can you please give it to me? No. He would say, here is somebody who has a great faith. So be it. Then you've won the big jackpot. So, blessed are you who hunger. Now, hunger what? You hunger for God. You're trembling in your heart and you're hungry. But for what? If people even forgot to eat, when you're in the presence of such a person, 
People even forget to take dinner or lunch. They say, man, I was with Jesus and I completely, for I was in a trance. I was transported. This man gave me the hope of the hopes. You know, and it's like I was there looking in his eyes and I could feel it can happen. It can, you know, now it can be it. So that's why when he says you hunger, he also means you hunger for God. He doesn't mean the... So how many meanings are just in one saying of Jesus formulated in such a way that it means so many things? Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Why? Because there was a contrast. There were people who were despising Jesus, and hey, they didn't pay attention. Just because he was irritating some religious formalities for them, they said that this man is not the real thing. This man, uh, uh, you know, Jesus was talking there, and one Jewish man he was almost leaping out of his chest. His heart was almost leaping out of his chest. He was here. He was hungry. You know, like one more millimeter and I am in the arms of God. And another one came, looked and said, another mad idiot. You know, and so, so he said, blessed you who hunger now because you shall be satisfied. Like there will be some of you to whom Jesus promised satisfaction. Try to realize, if Jesus is God, and now you're going to say, again, that, that argument is really stupid. Maybe he didn't say this. But guess what? These things exist, such sentences exist in the Gnostic Gospels, which were not censored by the Church. They belong to the Gnostic Church, and they were dating from the first century, second century, and they have never been processed by the church. They are documents which went around in history, and they were discovered in the 20th century, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Nag Hammadi Library, and others, the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, and others and others, which are apocryphal Christian literature, like the Vatican, and the official Christian church says, uh, we don't know, we don't know, those is apocryphal literature. Might be true, might not be true, we don't have any evidence. We know that this one is true. This one, you know? So, so it's like, then, in the apocryphal literature, there will be no blessings. But in the Gospels from the apocryphal, like the Gospel of Thomas and others, Jesus says the same thing. So actually, we know that 99.99%, Jesus said exactly this thing, and it so you see, he is turning the world upside down. He says, blessed if you are hungry. Nobody likes to be hungry. But he says, blessed if you are hungry, because you will be satisfied. Later, later, there comes a reward. Most people cannot believe in this. They say, I cannot live with hope like this. You know? I shall fast so that I am going to paradise. Would it be worth it to fast, to have meager food for 50 years, like some monks who went to monasteries and they had very low protein diet and stuff like this, and then to go to paradise for a, at least for a very, very long time, if not forever?
It's a good investment that 50 years of hunger or of semi-hunger followed by a hundred gazillion bazillion years of paradise. Worth it. It's the best investment in the world. So that's the problem of these things, that Jesus is becoming so preposterous. Blessed the poor in spirit. Blessed you when you are poor. Blessed are you now hunger. And it's like, is it a blessing in being hungry? And maybe, again, he speaks about the spiritual hunger. Like the people that have aspiration, that's how I would translate it in yoga. Blessed are you who have aspiration, and now you are like hungry for God, because you will be satisfied. When you have Ishvara Pranidhana, you are going to be fulfilled. God is going to answer to your candid request, to your pure request. So, then it goes into the same... Um, <coughs> Line. I've been bringing the King James edition, the old uh, edition of the Bible, just to read it to you in the old English, because modern Bibles, even this is a Catholic modern Bible, not that I'm Catholic, but I'm not Catholic, or something, but uh, <coughs> they translated it in modern English language, like modern, uh, and uh, this is expressed exactly as in casual language of today. In the old version, the 16th century or 17th century King James language, uh, he would say, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Satisfied, says the modern text, instead of filled. Yeah. So it's like, I just want to read it even in a double text, in a double edition, so you see exactly which are the twists of the phrase, because reading it, translating it, always loses or adds some meanings which might be okay or not. And then he continues, I'm not going to be able to finish this one, or maybe now that I announced the principles of it, now it's just the same for the others, so only when I find a, a good point, then that's what I will uh, insist. He says, blessed are you who weep now, who cry, for you will laugh. And in the old one, he says, exactly, blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. People like the laughter. Almost nobody likes the crying. And the truth is that when you cry from Swadhisthana, and Manipura, it's painful and horrible. The crying, which is the mystical cry for God, is a cry which comes from Anahata. And the cry from Anahata, those of you who have already experienced it, if you had an awakening of the soul, an experience of Jivatman, as we call it in yoga, which is a sort of a special experience in Anahata, or for those of you who didn't have it in this life yet, but I hope you will have it in the coming months or years. In the moment when you activate and you cry from the heart, this is completely happy. It's not unhappy. You are not depressed. You are not in pain. The depressed, Svadhisthanistic person cries 
and says, I move alone, nobody loves me, I will lose Like all my ships have drowned, have wrecked. The person who cries from Manipura is frustrated and angry, goes like, like in Japanese movies, watch people crying in Japanese movies. It's like I want to kill somebody and I'm angry and I'm you know, it's like there's a big frustration. But both of them are very painful one way or another. In Anahata, the crying in Anahata is a mystical crying. And that's why here Jesus is again using a multiple Antandra. Because a part of it, the one which first comes to me, is the fact that Jesus speaks about a mystical experience. In the art of prayer, which came in Christianity after Jesus, due to Jesus, via Jesus, in the art of prayer, there is an Eastern tradition of prayer, which is called the prayer of the heart, which is arguably, I think so probably, it is probably the strongest form of prayer created by Christianity. It's the method of prayer which is kind of really, really going deep. Prayer of the heart. It's a method which was finalized in the 15th century. By the 15th century it has reached its final form. And it's a whole technology of how to pray. If, if you want, you can Google prayer of the heart and find out more about it. So back to our story. In the prayer, the prayer is called the prayer of the heart, but it's like prayer of the heart is the goal. Because first you have the prayer of the lips, and then you have the prayer of the mind. And the prayer of the mind means that you read a prayer or you use a monotonous prayer, like a formula, or you read long prayers as well, and your mind attaches because people normally would go and say Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya or something, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar or something and they will not think about what they say. So that's not even prayer of the mind because your mind does not participate. You don't understand. If you say Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, then you have to understand, to mean in your mind what you say. Not to think about shopping to Tesco after you finish your prayer. So that's the prayer of the mind, and it's already difficult. And then, one person in a hundred reaches to the prayer of the heart. And the prayer of the heart means that when you say it, not only that you understand it and follow it, but you feel it. You live it out, even emotionally and experientially and existentially, it happens in you. When you say, you say. The prayer of the heart is usually recognized by a very simple, not simple at all, phenomenon. It's called the gift of Tears, which means when you enter in your heart, you have an awakening of Jivatma in your third chakra, and you start crying your heart out, sometimes for hours, non-stop. And it's not hysterical crying from Svadhisthana, 
it's not depressive, it's not angry or contracted, it is peaceful and endlessly grateful, and it is associated by a sort of a twisted ecstasy. You know, it's like you are in ecstasy and you don't know how to love God more to express your gratitude for this infinite thing which is happening to you right there. And it's like, and at the same time, you cry, there is a softness which is incredible and which goes on non-stop, non-stop. And it's very peaceful so that the prayer can continue and continue and continue. That's why when Jesus says, Blessed are those of you that weep. One of the more hidden meanings is blessed are those of you that weep when they pray, that reach to the prayer of the heart, that have the gift of tears. Most people pray and they would never shed a tear because they are not humble. They don't believe. They don't feel their kundalini is not moving. They are not into it. Prayer is a sort of a discussion with God for them. It's not. In the moment when it happens, it's like, you know, it's endless. You know, that's why you cannot, then you cannot do long prayers and long discourses. You know, then it's prayer. Uh, it can be done also from Manipura in some ways. There is a wonderful scene in the movie, which I recommend that we see in the school, in the movie called Beckett, about the life of Sir Thomas Beckett. <laughs> and he makes a prayer on Manipura, the prayer of a knight, the prayer of a, of a soldier of God who prays to God. For it, it's, you know, I, I saw this movie many, many, many years ago, together with a woman, who was very deep in Christian mysticism, was practicing the prayer of the heart enormously, you know, and she obtained amazing results from it, you know. And we saw this movie and then she looked at me and she said, you know, I, I was thinking this movie will not teach me much and so on. He said, but, but she said, I have to. And this, even in a Hollywood movie, even by Richard Barton, Richard Barton is playing, Saint Thomas Beckett, even in Hollywood movie and so on, the guy did it so well, he went so well into the role, so fanatically, you know, Richard Barton was a Scorpio and he could really be worked fanatic like this, no? And he goes, and this woman, who by the way was also a Scorpio, no? she says, that's prayer, that, that's prayer. That, now that is real prayer, that's what prayer is. What that man did had the exact spirit of prayer. So back to our story. That's why I encourage you to see that movie because you can see that scene and it will inspire you. So back to our story. Here Jesus clearly says, Blessed are those of you who weep. Hey, this weeping can be superficial. Like I'm weeping because my mother just died and I loved her very much and I'm sad. For two weeks I'm sad, and Jesus passed through my village, and I went to see Jesus because I'm interested in what he has to say, but I'm weeping, I'm in a depressed mood, and Jesus said, blessed, 
are you who are weeping, for you shall be fulfilled, for you shall be comforted, you shall be satisfied as I read in this text. So it can be also for this. There is always a compensation. What is bad is not always bad. I often mention in some lectures that crazy story of the Chinese farmer. There is a story in which every two lines things are going up and down and up and down and up and down. And every time when you think it's going to go up, it's going down. And every time when you think it's going down, it's going up. Like one of the things which I remember, the guy one day, he breaks his leg. And he's very sad. And then the next day, the army of the emperor passes through the village, and they take all the young up men to be soldiers in the army. They conscript them. And they don't take him because he has a broken leg. And they can't use him for anything. And later, all the young men from the village are dead in a battle. So actually, the fact that he broke his leg saved his life. So he says, happy are those who weep today because you broke your leg, because tomorrow you are going to dance with joy because breaking your leg was the best thing that could happen to you. Milarepa, in the end of his life, he said, I'm grateful to the people who killed my father and humiliated my mother because if they wouldn't have done that, I would have been just a miserable peasant somewhere in Tibet. But because they did those things, I went into extremes and eventually I found my enlightenment, I found my liberation. So those people, by creating hell in my life, they actually stimulated me to search for my liberation. So he said, they are like my guru. They have done, they pushed me more in my life than my guru Marpa pushed me. So that's why I say, no, Jesus is right. When you look philosophically, you say, happy are those who weep now, for they shall be filled. But it's the same with the hunger. Not every hungry person has become enlightened. Because they got hungry, and then they started cursing God. Fuck God, fuck all this life. Look how I'm living. What a miserable creation life is. Whoever created this universe is an idiot. I should never have been born. What is all this pain and all this sadness? I wish I was never born. I you know, like people take it bad. And they react negatively. And Jesus says you have to try the, to find the positive side in being hungry. And then you are going to be fulfilled. And you have to find the positive side in weeping. How many people have weeped and have been miserable? And eventually, did they have been fulfilled, satisfied? Like, to be satisfied in the meaning of Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit. To be in bliss, that's the only satisfaction which resists. Ecstasy, ananda. Because otherwise, if somebody gives you three candies, then five days later, you don't have the candies anymore, and the misery is back. And on top of that, you might get some caries in your teeth because of the sugar. You know? So it's like, you, we're not talking about satisfying your senses. When he says you are going to be satisfied, it means your soul is going to be fulfilled. You are going to be fulfilled spiritually. You know? And 
But how many people have cried and have been miserable? And they died miserable and depressed and frustrated and unfulfilled. Because those people never, you see what Jesus says? He says, think like God. Give everything to God. When you are poor, be poor for God. When you are hungry, be hungry for God. This is Ishvara Pranidana, remember. Yeah? It's like, it's not enough to be non-violent and truthful and this. It matters why you are non-violent and truthful and you do Brahmacharya. The same here. Jesus doesn't say everybody who is poor will reach God. Everybody who is hungry will be in ecstasy. Everybody who cries today will receive ecstasy. No! Most of them will not because they forget to consecrate it to God. They say, if I am sad, let me at least be sad for God. You know, like via God, with God. Like I'm hungry. Okay, I'm hungry and then you know what? I transform my hunger into an offering to God. If I'm hungry anyway, can I please consecrate this day of fasting to you? Oh, Ganesha. So I'm fasting for Ganesha, you know. Somebody says, you are a hypocrite because you didn't have food. I didn't have food, but as I told you, I could have found a job. I could have begged. I could have stolen. I could have asked a friend. But I did not. I simply gave it to Ganesha. I said, I'm hungry anyway. I'm the I'm you know, maybe I'm too lazy to get out of the house and go and steal some food from someone. There is a more simple method. I'm giving it to Ganesha anyway. Ganesha, I'm hungry. I'm fasting for you. I consecrate this fast to you. Because I'm hungry anyway. What a difference that makes to be poor, but to give it as a sacrifice to God. To be hungry, but to give it as a sacrifice to God. To weep to shed tears, to be sad, and to do it for God. To say, God, I'm sad for you because you must be sad when you see so much ignorance, so much violence, so much pain, so much lack of understanding, so much negative karma and people being caught in their blindness. So much, you know, this earth sometimes is a very sad place when you look at it, you know. So I can even cry, you know, because... Everybody is God, there is a beauty, and nobody seems to see it. There's at least 99.99% of the people, they don't see it. The only pure beauty which they see is like in American beauty. You know, they smoke some marijuana and then they are happy. This is so sad. American beauty is such a sad and depressive movie. That's the only way to find some fulfillment because eventually that guy, Nicolas Cage or whoever, was a total loser and he falls in love with some teenage girl and smokes marijuana and has fantasy and then he looks at the plastic bag that is played by the wind. You know, it's sad. There is so much beauty in this world, you know, and... Uh, most people never see it. They think that if they see a plastic bag while they smoke marijuana, that's like, whoa. It's so little. It's
it's so sad, so, so you can't really be sad, and you can't cry, you know, you can like, there's so much beauty in this world, and that is so seldom that you actually see it, and to give it to God, to do it for God, to say, look, I'm weeping for God, you know, why am I ignorant? Why can I not see God? Why are we human beings born in such a state of dependence? We depend on food. We depend on water. We depend on oxygen. We depend on all sorts of other needs, such as sex, socializing, sleeping. And it's like, how dependent are we? How much slaves we are? It's a sad condition, eventually. No, it's not a godly condition. Maybe we dream that we can become like God and we are more independent, more and more and more powerful and independent. But right now, we are not. No? And therefore, blessed says Jesus are those of you who weep because you shall be satisfied, which means bliss comes from the tears. This is the great warning of Kapil Gibran. When Kapil Gibran, in his famous paragraph about love, he says love comes with laughter and it comes with tears as well. It's going to crown you, but it's going to crucify you as well. Like Jesus was crowned and crucified, crowned like this. No? So don't think love is easy. Because love is going to make you cry. But he says, if you run away from those tears, which most of the modern people do, like I've been teaching Tantra for a lot of years. And I'm talking now about sexual Tantra and relationships and this. For most people, Tantra is great as long as it's fun. In the moment when the tears are coming, very few people are ready to learn from those tears. Because those tears are just the opposite side of love. It's head and tails. It's still love. Love has laughter and tears. And Kathleen Gibran knows that most people don't dare to take the part with the tears. And they say, if you are not ready to take the tears, then he says, go out and go out of the threshing floor and he says you will live a life he says but your laughter is not going to be the complete laughter and your love is not going to be the complete love because you are afraid to stick your neck totally in it you know to give yourself totally in it to surrender then he says your anahata or whatever way you want to put it is going to be half activated because you like the heart where there is laughter and joy but you don't realize that in the anahata of god look at the life of jesus because he's archetypal half of his life is joy he's raising the dead and materializing food from heaven and then his crucifixion and all the persecution and this it's a tragedy it's a tragic thing which happens it's the same love of God, which half of it is laughter and mirth, and half of it is fear and tragedy. God loves us with laughter and with tears. Some of what human beings do, a human being takes a vow, a spiritual vow. 
and says, I shall fast, or I shall control my sexual energy, or, and even the gods are floating in heaven, and the masters of Shambhala are happy, and God is smiling. And then some people make war, and murder, and blasphemy, and darkness, and God is weeping. Because Jesus came and showed you the way, and a million other masters came and showed the way, and the human beings are still in themselves, and they don't see the point. So, of course, there is a tragedy. The history of humanity is half joy, and there is a half tragedy, and they are both the two sides of one and the same coin. So when you take one, you take the other. Like life and death. You cannot have life without death. Once you start life, then it has to be followed by death because there has to be the compensation. There is the two sides of the coin. So the polarity always exists, and this polarity exists in the heart. So Jesus alludes to this when he says, of course it can be interpreted superficially. Like if you are in a sorrow, that sorrow, God knows about your sorrow. And if you try to interpret that sorrow wisely, then God will show you the light, will show you that your pain has not been for nothing. There has been a meaning to it. Of course that is that, but that's the most superficial thing that those who weep. But what about those who weep in prayer? What about those who weep because of the philosophical thing, because of the love? which I just mentioned. Weeping can be interpreted also as a metaphoric thing, that you are weeping for God. Lala Laleshwari, the Kashmirian poet, says, God, you are giving blindness with one hand and freedom with the other hand. Then she says, by which misfortune didn't I get the freedom yet? You know, like, since everything is just a game where Shiva is dancing and giving and taking and so on, she says, when, 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 when will I get the gift? You know, it's like, it's all a gift. If Shiva does like this, you've got it. It takes nothing more but an act of consciousness of the divine, and you've got it. So, Jesus understands that some people are weeping because they can't find themselves. It's again aspiration. Every longing is a form of aspiration. Every form is like we are looking for something. But for what? Are we really looking for bread? Are we really looking for money? Are we really looking for laughter? That's all we are chasing for. No, we are looking for something which we are missing. We are looking for the missing piece of the puzzle. And the missing piece of the puzzle is that consciousness of I am that, that discovery, that I am, that enlightenment. And that enlightenment is so easy and at the same time so difficult. And also Jesus says, blessed are those who weep, because you are asking for it, you are there, knocking at the door, and it shall come to you. If you are going to be satisfied, which means you are going to find the eternal happiness. So, I will continue next time. There are, if I remember, three or four more blessings. The whole list is of nine blessings, but Luke is quoting only five or six or seven of them, because he heard about this famous discourse of Jesus, 
but probably he didn't hear completely, so he wrote down what he got out of it. As I said, there are several versions of it which complete each other. So let us stop for now. You got some things tonight. This discourse of Jesus is so famous because he's turning the world upside down. He says everything thinks it's bad to be poor, not if you are poor for God. Everybody thinks it's bad to be stupid. Not if you are a simpleton of God, like the reluctant saying. Uh, you are, so everybody thinks it's bad to be hungry, but if you are hungry in the name of God, then things become a different story. And nobody wants to go into the weeping, but sometimes weeping is the way of discovering God. Remember in the prayer of the heart, this is exactly what's happening. People are opening up and they can cry not for hours, for days, for weeks, for months, they can cry. It is said about, just to conclude this with tears, it is said about the Apostle Peter that, you know, they became enlightened 49 days after Jesus resurrected. Like 49 days after Easter, there is this famous party when they make carnivals in many cities, which is called the Pentecost. And the Pentecost is the day when the 12 apostles became enlightened. They replaced Judah with another one, so they were again 12. And those 12, they became enlightened. 9 o'clock in the morning or something, they were already, whoa, just going nuts. And people thought that they were drunk. And there's this famous story when they talked in foreign languages. They were in Samadhi. And then Peter became like fully aware. And just 49 days before, he had betrayed Jesus. Not betrayed bad like Judas, but betrayed Jesus like people said, you are also a disciple. And he said, no, 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 I don't know him, I don't know him. But like he was a coward. He was a worm. And he didn't like it. And when he reached to this consciousness, then he was awakened. And he looked back and he said, what, what an animal, what a miserable, cowardly creature I have been. You know, that even my master, I didn't stood by my own master, you know. I didn't protect him. I didn't say, yes, this man is innocent. This man is not like, I just, you know, like, so many things are similar, so many things in history have happened exactly similar to that. And then Peter remained in this state. And the unofficial story of the church, of the Christian church, says that from that day until he died, Peter every day cried non-stop. Not violently, not Japanese cry. You know, they cried like tears were flowing on his cheeks. And they say that he cried so much that he had marks on his cheek because of the tears flowing constantly. The skin was, he had a wrinkle where the tears were going because he cried like for 40 years, for 30 years, he cried nonstop. And then when he was about to be crucified, then he was a different man. And you know, most of you know the story that when Peter got crucified, he said, you want to crucify me? Like Jesus? He said, I am a worm. I do not deserve to die. It would be a glory for me if you'd crucify me. I don't deserve to die of the death of which Jesus died. It's too much of an honor you're doing to me. 
and the Roman soldiers hearing this, they said, okay, if you are a crazy old bastard, we can do something worse. And they crucified him upside down to make it more horrible, to like really push the envelope. Peter was crucified upside down. Now he had the courage. Now he didn't say, oh, I didn't know Jesus. And he was not a worm anymore. But to, to stay in this consciousness, he cried 30 years every day. So this crying from the heart is not a depression. It's a glory. It's a spiritual glory. And it's something which comes from the awakened soul of the human being. More about this as we talk in other satsangs. Thank you all for resisting to a long one and I came a bit late as well. We, I will see you in the next activities here in Natal.